This is Link to the Cast, your weekly dose of video games and nerd culture ephemera available everywhere good podcasts are sold. I'm this week's party host. I am the platforming prodigy. I am Mark Robinson. Both Dave Ryan and Garrett Kidney are away on assignment, but with me as always, he is Mr. Chelsea. He is Jack Lazell. And Jack, I have a very important question for you. All right, you ready? Go for it. What is your preferred topping on toast? On toast? Wow. I mean, yeah, like there's, well, Mark, there's many schools of thought on this subject. Uh, First of uh, all, sweet or savoury? Oh, it depends, I think, on... Time the of day? Yeah, on the day, but there was, I feel like savoury is, would probably be standard, like a salted butter or something, or maybe some cheese on toast and make a toasted cheese sandwich. That's, that feels more, more of a lunch thing. How do you um, feel about it, pate? I, I do like pate. Um, yeah, yeah I, I am a fan of pate. I know it's probably sort of a vulgar thing to eat, you know, it makes you sound like a Tory if you eat it, but I do enjoy it. Um, that's that's the, probably the, the loosest connection to a Tory I've ever heard, but all right, I'll go with what, it. Or pate? Yeah. I don't know. Well, maybe more foie gras if you were going to... Sure. Yeah. yeah. Or, you know, f- fish eggs, something like that. Yeah. I, I order the foie gras and I eat it with complete disdain. With um, a quail's egg. Exactly, yeah, quail, like a dodo egg with like a floating caviar inside it, I don't know. Anyway, um, <laughs> back to toast. It depends what time of day you're eating the toast, I would say. It See, really does. I I would agree with that, but I have been known to hanker down a slice of uh, toast with peanut butter and jam at nine o'clock in the morning and at nine o'clock in the evening. So I, I'd be contradicting myself if I was to agree fully with that statement. I do like a morning toast peanut butter. Um, I will I will happily do that. I feel like sweeter toast for me comes like a later in the day. Or weirdly, if I'm on holiday. Um, I remember when I was in a hotel in Milan, kind of this, roughly this time last year, and uh, a, like free breakfast in the hotel, you had pastries and all that kind of stuff. But also there was toast and they had these little mini, mini jars of Nutella, Mark. Uh, let me tell you, I uh, I got loose oh, yeah. with some Nutella, oh, yeah. and that is a great toast topping. Yeah, uh, I I found like over the years, um, we've seen kind of more variations of Nutella. Like some, you're going to a supermarket now, and uh, at one time it just felt like there was just Nutella was the only option. But like a lot of the store branded chocolate spreads are pretty fucking decent as well. Or you get the chocolate spreads mixed in with like the marshmallow, or mm. there's the uh, the the oh, what's the kind of like sweet biscuit you get with a tea that biscoff. they now have as like biscoff yeah they have that yeah. as a spread as well which is just whoa yeah all that's dangerous stuff i mean that's a thick spread as well that it spreads is. on like a brick shit house uh right on the toast i feel like you're sort of injuring the toast with that if you're spreading on biscoff or something of that viscosity is probably the word that i'm looking for viscosity yeah, exactly. Bis- yeah. Biscoff viscosity. Try oh. and say that ten times quickly, and that there's is your a title. Mouthful. <laughs> a mouthful in many ways. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, I do love a, yeah a bit of Biscoff. It's one of those things if it's like blended into a like one of those freaky milkshakes they have, or if it's come in with like a sundae or something just sprinkled on top nicely. It's yeah. uh, it's very good. Um, is it f- Five Guys do a lot of. Uh, shakes with like Biscoff and stuff in it. You can get like Biscoff and Oreo and yeah. I, when it comes to chocolate spreads, as good as the other things are, I don't think anything does beat Nutella because I just think that combination of chocolate and hazelnut 
is is kind of undefeated in my eyes but i am willing to try anyone if they've got any alternative suggestions you know i will oh, do that i will i will try hard and do this research a very difficult journey of eating various chocolate spreads but i, will <laughs> I take can't that remember on. where it was exactly but for a while we were um trying to find um like replacements for a bunch of different things. One thing in particular, we were trying to find like a, a chocolate spread that didn't use palm oil because that's kind of the one issue with Nutella is it uses palm oil. So we were trying to find a, a replacement. And I can't for the life of me remember, what, it might even just be like fucking little or something, but they had a chocolate spread that was both like very reasonably pri- priced and it didn't use palm oil. Uh, and it was fucking incredible. Um, but I, I can't for life. I, mean, I, I want to say it was little, but it was at least like one of the this kind of supermarket um, variants. And um, I'm broke as fuck now, so I, I don't you know spend too much time dilly dallying about like trying to find uh, suitable replacements because um, you know such as the times we're in. But, yeah, to, um, eat, to eat not only healthily but ethically is really yeah. expensive. Yeah, you yeah, ever yeah, been yeah. in a Whole Foods? It disgusts oh, yeah. me. It's out, like the moment you try and fucking um, eat with any kind of level of you know organic um, or just just this kind of top of the range sort of stuff. Like it, it, the the prices you're working with are fucking insane. And there's like a, we got a really nice sort of Whole Foods, really like top of the range uh, type of quality uh, shop in Dublin that we would go to quite a bit when we both had jobs. And, um, you know, but it, you would still like treating yourself, you know, you weren't going there to do your sort of regular shop. And like, I don't want to uh, uh, kind of knock you too much in terms of your um, place of employment, Jack, but sometimes I go into that place and I'm like, you know, I'm sure there are people here that do a regular shop here, but I can't for the fucking life of me imagine doing it myself. Yeah, but, um, you know. without giving too much away, that is currency conversion screwing you over as well. Um, true, true. And, and you'll notice that any um, British goods maker that ships their product over to Ireland with the co- conversion rate will always. No one's rounding down. <laughs> it's always rounding up. Um, uh, yeah, and I think it probably costs a bit more now as well because um, some some people in this country thought it was a good idea to kind of um, disassociate ourselves with Europe. But anyway, I digress. Um, I'm now hungry for chocolate spread. That That's all I'm going to tell you. You are welcome. Um, the first thing I wanted to ask you before we get into our regular schedule, uh, typically when uh, the other two are away, uh, we would usually at some point uh, break down in or divulge into, uh, you know, usually the kind of nostalgic tinged part of our musical history. But I wanted to kind of jump in and see uh, what you've been recent listening to recently. Uh, anything, anything new I should have my hands on because my pulse on modern music um, outside of like the one thing I've been listening to recently, I quite like is uh, the boy genius record. Yes. Um, but I also quite like Phoebe Bridges uh, work as well. Um, and I, I think that the album's really, really well crafted. I haven't yet got round to the new Sufjan Stevens album, but I will be giving that a listen at some point as well. Uh, but outside of that, I don't think I've any, listened to anything from, and I don't even think the Boy Genius album's 2023. That might have been last year. I think it, I think it is this year. I think it was really early this year. Um, it was one of the first records that I listened to this year, if I remember. Um, so what have I been listening to so far recently? I was telling you just before we came on the podcast, um, I've had the um, Origami Angel album, The Brightest Days, stuck in my head basically for the last couple of months. So I've been playing that. Uh, imagine sort of 
I don't know, almost kind of like surf, surfer pop, like a, like a Weezer or a Beach Boys, but then combined with like heavy riffs and math rock and almost emo-esque vocals. And it's a real interesting combination of, of all of those elements. Absolutely great. Uh, the new Del Paxton record, which is again, is a little bit more of an emo, but it's kind of more sort of um, alternative kind of indie rock but with a bit of emo some interesting time signatures some some great guitar playing um small band called blink 182 <laughs> oh yeah yeah i've i've heard um interesting things about the the new album i mean it's good i like i know you know people that were because i i never was massively into blink so I know when I saw the, the the new video for the album that came out and was very much kind of playing into the history of the band, uh, I know for uh, people that were into the band uh, when they were younger, like it was very much kind of a trip down memory lane and, and quite powerful. I guess also considering, you know, the last couple of years with, with Mark and, and what's been going on with him. Yeah. Um, I, you know, having a heart of stone, didn't really care about it at all. But for those that are emotionally oh, attached, Mark, I can like, understand. I mean, if someone has cancer, you can't just say I don't care. Like, no, no, even- I'm, I'm not. <laughs> Jesus Christ. No, I was not on about that. I was on about, like, just the history of Blink and... Oh, know, right, right, right. Yeah, okay. that, that side of it, Jesus. <laughs> Sorry. I've obviously <laughs> completely misinterpreted what you said there, mate. Apologies. Um, yeah, so I, it was... it was It's rough, and it seems like the last time they kind of all got back together, like Travis nearly died because he was in a plane crash. And then this time Mark had cancer um, and they literally do a song on the record where they're like, why would it take this sort of crazy occurrence to get back? But it's, it's Tom and Mark have had some issues kind of over the years. And I think, I don't know. It just, it seems I feel right like that more of that is specifically on Tom's side of being a fucking nut. Uh, yeah. Look, Tom is, I think Tom the original- is Tom. Yeah, Tom, Tom's gonna Tom. I think the original issues were around him, you know, not wanting to carry on with the monolith of the band and feeling like he had different priorities in life. Um, and he talks a little bit about it because they did like an hour or so interview with Zane Lowe. Um, it was really a really interesting listen. And Tom just talks about his childhood and like, you know, not having his dad around and just witnessing like a, a abuse and just horrible things going on in his, his family life and how much it affected him so that when he had his own children and he was off touring, like emotionally just felt disconnected from the whole experience. And like, you know, if you've had tough times, like, or an absentee father and, you know, just general issues at home, you're going to be like your natural instance is to be with your children and actually them to grow up with a father who's not constantly like tracking around the world and then had like quite a few issues around the time he started angels and airwaves and just i don't think he was in a good place as a person i think um and that caused a bit of a rift and uh yeah generally i think they fell out again i i'm not sure why or what the 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 uh implications were after they released neighborhoods which was about 10 years ago now which is a pretty good record um but now they're back together and you know those two have been best friends since they were like 14 uh, regardless of what the issues are i just think it's always sad when you see two people who are best friends and they just fall out and they can't find a way back to back to each other right i'll say like oasis yeah like say what you want about oasis and the, <laughs> and you know who they are as people and whether people like them or not or what people feel about oasis in 2023 it's just sad that there are two brothers that like you know, grew up with each other and hate each other so much they don't even speak anymore. And they were in this sort of monolithic, huge band that meant so much 
to an entire generation of people that lived in Britain. It's yeah, it's it's just sad when you see situations like that. So it's always nice to see people come back together. Like I, I, I think- feel privilege I got to see Fleetwood Mac um, before yeah. they broke apart again because yeah. <laughs> I know Lindsay Buckingham was out of the band again at the moment and then obviously yeah. I, I think the thing died, with but. with Noel and Liam in particular is like that's where ego meets stubbornness and it's on such a monolithic fucking scale with those two in particular um, and I feel like it's more on kind of Noel's side then because I feel like Liam like I know a lot of the catalyst for why it ended up happening is because you know Liam was was being Liam but I do feel like kind of over the years he's sort of like I don't know whether he's just kind of realised his ways whatever or he's just I don't know you, you get into your 50s and I have to imagine you chill out a little bit but I, I don't know for on Noel's side whether there's just kind of like this just this kind of like pride sort of thing that you know he was just done with it and he would never want to go back to it or what the case may be um but it is kind of, I guess, impressive that they've they've never decided to. I mean, they don't need the fucking money. Like, the, if there's any band or any you know, two particular musicians who don't need to get back to together for the money, it's no one. Liam Gallagher. They're they're set for life from about I don't know two weeks into definitely maybe being released back in nine ninety four. Uh, but it's, yeah. it is almost impressive that they've they've never um, kind of. And you bet there's the been grudge. offers as oh, of well. Of course, you bet. Like absolutely. You know, like a Coachella or something, you know, any of those I was thinking and- the kingdom of Saudi Arabia personally, but yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah, exactly. Um, Mohammed bin Salman is going to reunite Oasis. Uh, I mean, if that happened, like all of my sadness that they'd not been together for all this time would immediately <laughs> evaporate. <laughs> I must say, but hey, yeah, it is what it is. But uh, yeah, uh, there's there's a lot of good music out there. I'm just going to throw out like maybe four or five more artists and then we or an, an album to listen to from this year, and then we can move on with the show. Um, but I would say um, the new Daughter record was really good. Stereo Mind Game, go and listen to that. Um, there's a band called Feeble Little Horse had had a record called Girl with a Fish, very very good. Elysian Skies by Lakes, who are like a UK kind of um, indie sort of um, post-rock band really really good um, highly recommend it um, Boy Genius as you said Mark is a is a great record from this year uh, Lies which is the side project of um, American Football the Kinsella Brothers beautiful album like really good chill out relax throw it on sort of fade away um there was a new Manchester Orchestra record this year called The Valley of Vision, which is also very good. So there you go. Um, go and have a listen to some of that stuff and let me know what you think. Or don't. It's a free country. Thank you very much. Uh, let's bounce over into what we've been watching. And I haven't been watching anything in particular, but one thing I did want to talk about that I don't know if we've ever discussed on the show before um, is The Great British Bake Off. <laughs> I was not expecting this. I'm sure you were. <laughs> now, my first question, Jack: What have you? Do you have a history with the British Bake Off? The, are you a regular viewer of of this show? No, 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 I'm not. I'm not a regular viewer of the show. Um, I've seen some of the celebrity stuff because they sometimes get like some funny people on there. The James Acaster Great tremendous. British Bake Off incident yeah. is just perfection as is his stand-up bit about that as well. Um, him telling the story of how he was on like 36 hours with no sleep and then had to try and make muffins <laughs> or whatever he was trying to make is very, very funny. Uh, but yeah, I, d- 
look, I like everyone that hosts it. Um, like the non-bakey people, like you know, Mel and Sue are great, and yeah, I, <laughs> Matt Lucas, I, I kind of tolerate him, but then obviously I love Noel Fielding, and I think a lot of the stuff around the show is really cool, but. I don't watch cooking shows as a rule because A, they make me hungry. Um, like whenever I used to watch Man vs. Food or even if I watch Hot Ones or something, I'm just like, oh God, I just, I'm, I'm hungry after I watch this. Um, and B, I just don't find people cooking interesting. Um, you know, they kind of build it up like, oh, is this person going to get their buns done in time? Hmm. <laughs> you know, I don't care. Uh, <laughs> unless I'm sat there eating these buns, it's not really interesting to me, I must say. Uh, I don't mind the show. I think the show's well edited and bright and very easily digestible, pun intended and not intended at the same time, I think. But it's not for me. Um, and I have no beef with it. Uh, but I, I just don't think I'm ever going to spend any time kind of, you know, going back through my, through, through my great British bake off takes brother. Remember that <laughs> fucking pastry from season three. Oh my God. I just, the thing that I don't know if it surprises me about it is the fact that like they've gone for 14 seasons now and there's something, I guess, quite similar to, to uh, taskmaster, but there are certain differences in the dynamics, but they're saying very, you, very different shows, but yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But there, there is something very kind of easily digestible about it. But, you know, Taskmaster does also hang on, like, the, the particular crew of five they have for a particular season, where hmm. with Taskmaster, the, the, the actual contestants, it doesn't really matter too much. Like, you don't really get too much of the personalities from them, and it's purely just more on, like, the actual stuff that they're, they're making. But, yeah. like, the actual kind of format of the show really hasn't changed over the 14 years outside of, as you mentioned, obviously, like, the presenters. And and there's just something very simple about the show. There's just a very kind of simple winning formula. And it's one of those few things where... um, Not to say that I'm proud of, like, this thing, that it's British and whatnot, but I think it's... There's something where it's particular. It's quite low stakes compared to like whenever you watch any of the the American cooking reality shows, and it's you anxiety know, kind of inducing. Everything in fucking America, in particular, it's so much like bigger and more grandiose and more like you know the the narrator is talking about like this is a fucking life and death situation and the way they do quick cuts in the editing and all this kind of shit that I just can't stand. And it like, cuts like a one shot waist up of someone talking about how their, de- their, their dead grandmother would be so proud of them and stuff and then the next minute they're like shouting at an oven to switch on or something. But it's, it's it's not even just jarring. that. It's I, I think the biggest thing in particular um, with, with like American reality shows is like every single fucking sequence that happens in the show has a talking head uh like part kind of a narrative to it either pre or post like whatever thing happens where most of the talking head stuff in british bake-off typically ha- happens at the end of like you know the the first day or the start of the second day or whatever <laughs> well i fucked that up <laughs> uh, and so yeah exactly yeah but it just it makes the pacing it, it allows the show to kind of breathe a lot more and you can just kind of focus on like you know instead of going to a, a, a cut to them outside the tent talking it's just there they're making it at the time and they're talking about what they're doing and it gives it i guess just a little bit more kind of air of like a of, of a credibility to it or like an authenticity to it i guess where you know so much of the american reality stuff just feels so fucking edited and fake and blah 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 and i just i don't know like 14 seasons in i just i still watch this and it's such a just a pleasant easy watch to to just consume again pun intended not intended and uh 
I don't know. I, I, I feel like it's it's a real kind of like just a winner of a show that, um, again, I guess like Taskmaster, you put this in the hands of a different production company in a different country. And obviously, you know, I haven't watched the American Taskmaster, but I know you've kind of mentioned that it's not that great. Oh, it's not. Abs- yeah, it was bad. And I can absolutely see why, because part of the charm of Taskmaster is because of how low stakes the show is that it, you know, you don't fucking want to take this thing seriously. And I just, yeah. it's something that they, they got everything wrong. Like the shows yeah. were, were half the length. Um, the actual like house they used and everything just was not like, it, it, it looked like a house in the hills in LA. It looked like nice. You know how the UK one's just weird and quirky and it's got like a shit wonky driveway. And yeah, the thing I love about Taskmaster is that it's a little bit shit. Even in its 16th series, it's a little bit shit, okay? Whereas the American one was just overly polished. And it's what the New Zealand one has the vibe perfect, which is just like, there is a futile, feeble nature of the silliness of the things that we are doing, and it's all a little bit dumb, but let's fucking get on with it anyway, because it's good fun. Um, and that's that's kind of what they didn't find. Um yeah, Bake Off, it's kind of a bit like, there's a sort of a methadone feel to it, isn't it? It's like a sort of take your medicine and sit back and just sort of like veg out and, you know, detox from the the world of all the crazy things going on around you. And, and I think as well show. with like both the shows, again, you know, they're, they're fucking well over 10 years go, going short. Taskmaster, I guess, is, is coming up to 10 years. But th- there was a very easy opportunity for them to rapidly like increase the budget for both of those shows. And, you know, Taskmaster has used um, uh, different locations to kind of vary up some of the tasks. And, you know, so that part of it. But it's still in terms of, like, again, you mentioned with the house um, and with the British Bake Off in terms of the location, like, I'm sure there's been increases in certain areas, but for the most part, the shows have kind of more or less retained what was there from the the beginning. And I do appreciate that instead of, you know, just ramping up production to to a degree where it it doesn't need it. It's just like, you know, look, hey, this is a winning formula. Let's not fuck around too much with it. And I, I, it feels like because someone took a chance on it. Therefore, the budget was always this and that it might have grown a little bit. But, you know, especially with UK TV, like no one really wants to spend a lot of money on it anyway. Therefore, like the budget gains. If it was, you know, something that they bought like a big property and they were chucking loads of money at it to start with, it probably looked higher value. But yeah, they're both they're both like filmed and shot and located and intrinsically British things Uh, like, you know, even with a the locations they go to in Taskmaster, they're still like a weird, like, like sort of like old British overtone to a lot of it. Like, you know, the, the, the season where they went to like that weird abandoned bit of canal and did stuff with boats or I think in the season where they were like using like a, an abandoned train station and like, it was like a railway museum or something. It, yeah, just weird. And then like, obviously Bake Off, they do like fields and British country houses and stuff, don't they? So, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's not. There's nothing overly polished about either of them. They're both, yeah, it's, it's a really interesting comparison of shows. But um, I, I do, I do you. have one thing to have a quick rant about um, for this particular season. So uh, Matt Lucas, um, he he didn't uh, uh, do this season. I I don't particularly care for Matt Lucas, but they brought on uh, Alison Hammond as uh, to to join Noel Fielding and. Uh, 
I don't know how much you know about Alison Hammond. Like, for anyone who, who's listening, who isn't aware, uh, she was a Big Brother contestant back in, I think, like 2002. Um, and since that time, she's been, you know, kind of like a presenter on, on a number of different, uh, like, reality shows. And uh, I guess her kind of biggest thing now, she's, um, I think she's like now one of the lead presenters on This Morning. I know she's been a part of This Morning for a while, but after the whole thing with fucking um, what's-his-face, uh, Philip Schofield. I, I think she's now part of that that kind of core lineup. I don't know. I haven't watched this morning in forever. Um, why, as we have, why have we as a society spent the last 20 years trying to pretend that this woman is funny, right? I swear to God, every single fucking line that she has in this show is meant to come across as, like, with, with humour. But there's nothing there. And every single thing she says, they cut to like one of the contestants who's chuckling away to themselves. And Noel Fielding is next to, to her, chuckling to him, himself about whatever she says. And nothing she says is funny. And I, it, I, if she'd have just come on and she had a little bit of like her bubbly personality and just spoke to the contestants, I'd be fine. But they try and fuck. It's the one thing where like the first time I'm watching the show and I like want to throw my shoe at the fucking television. Wow. And- I don't know why we have spent the last 20 years trying to pretend that anything this woman's ever said is funny. Mark That's putting it. the I, shoes, I feel, the boots into Hammond here. This is, I, uh, I, f- I feel better now I've got that on my system. Thank you. Wow, Thank you for listening. Yeah. And, and we were talking about how much you, you know, relax and enjoy this show. Mm, and all of mm. a sudden you're spewing white hot hatred. It's like, it's like opening Twitter when somebody's speaking... Just, just nothing but anger towards certain people. But I'm not I, wrong, all right? I'm just, I'm not wrong on this. Hey, just, listen. Just saying. I don't have an opinion on Alison Hammond, you know? The same way I don't have an opinion on spoons. Uh, <laughs> it's just something that exists um, that I interact with every now and then, um, but doesn't really have any effect on my brain. So there you go. Okay. All right. All right. Well, uh, we'll leave it at that for now. And... Um, Jack, you have watched a film this week. Tell me more about it. Yes, I watched the movie Blackberry, which is about blackberries. Um, Remember the cultural phenomenon that was the blackberry, Mark. Did you ever have a blackberry? I did not. I had... In the great BlackBerry slash iPhone war, I had the like one of the first models of the iPhone. Mm. Um... And then I switched to an Android device after that, I don't remember, and then never looked back. But no, I knew people that had a BlackBerry. Um, I have seen them in person, and I thought they looked a bit fucking stupid. Um, and I think I think I probably got the iPhone purely just because of Angry Birds. I, I generally don't think there was anything <laughs> more to it than that. It was a great game at the time. Um, I'm sure they've ruined it with microtransactions since. Yeah, it's funny that you mentioned... Uh, iPhone, it's almost like you can't mention BlackBerry without mentioning iPhone. But interestingly, it's like the end of the second act of BlackBerry is basically like, yeah, everything's going great and we're doing really well and all of this kind of stuff. And the start of the third act is that speech that Steve Steve Jobs gives about like, not only is it an iPod, but it's also a phone and it's also the internet in your pocket. And instead of having like three, four devices, you have the one thing. And everyone's just staring at the screen in the BlackBerry factory like, oh, we're fucked. (laughs) Everybody is absolutely in immediate agreement that that they are going down. Um, But yeah, I think it's a really, it was a really revolutionary bit of kit. I don't think you get to iPhone without BlackBerry, for instance. I think, you know, the whole sort of emails on your phone and all of that kind of idea and then, 
you know, their their whole gimmick was the tactile keyboard, wasn't it? It was like having an entire proper computer keyboard, you know, all the way down, sort of metered all the way down into something that you can click with your thumbs and type quickly and type like you're typing on a computer. And and then Apple were just like, well, why would we have that in the tech when we could just have it like pop up on screen when you need to type and use it, which is, again, so much better of an idea. But Blackberry the movie, interesting. So Jay Baruchel plays Mike Lazaridis, who is one of the CEOs or co-founders of Research in Motion, or RIM, who are a Canadian company, who were the ones that were trying to sell various pieces of tech. Um, I think they sold a bunch of modems to the uh, US robotics uh, at one stage. Uh, And they had the sort of idea and had a prototype for BlackBerry, and they went to try and pitch it to uh, Jim Ballsilly, or Ballsilly, I can't remember, I think Ballsilly is how you pronounce it, and they do a whole bit about how his name is hard to pronounce, who is played by Glenn Howerton of Always Sunny fame, Um, and he's basically, you know, working for a company who invests in other companies, smaller startups, or uh, other areas, and and try and make money out of them, and uh, they pitch to this guy, and you can see that the gears telling his head like this is a good idea, um, but these guys don't know what they're doing. And then he loses his job, and he's like, "Fuck it, I'll come and be your CEO. Um, we can make loads of money with this." And off they go. Um, but Jim Balsilly or Balsilly is a, I want to say, terrible person. <laughs> Uh, he is sort of jealous and angry and touchy and difficult to deal with and all the things that make him a good like ruthless capitalist businessman that drags you know these like sort of nerdy Canadian boys with their idea up is also the same things that ultimately do for him in a bad way Uh, and he uh, he ends up trying to hire these you know really great people away from big companies like Google and Apple and stuff but uh, ends up paying them in sort of dodgy stock options in the company and he has to end up leaving uh, and they lose a lot of their direction and identity and then ultimately try and make a iPhone style phone and it fails and the company kind of goes down but it's an interesting story like a rags to riches it's not 100% accurate as these retellings never seem to be um, but it's yeah it's a completely different side of Glenn Howerton I've never seen before and I watched it and I was like you know what this guy's actually a pretty good actor you know and, and he's almost unrecognizable so I think if you didn't really know him very well or knew him from Always Sunny, you you probably wouldn't recognise him in this movie unless you definitely knew it was him. Um, even some of his line deliveries are just completely 180 from from what he does in Always Sunny. And, and Jay Baruchel is very good. I feel like the film is kind of a 6, 7 out of 10 at best. Um, it's an interesting story. It could have been a documentary. It's like a two-hour film. It could have been an hour and a half. Um, but it's worth watching if you don't know anything about uh, Blackberry and kind of some of the history behind the company I'd I'd recommend giving it a watch just because I think it's, it's an interesting story and yeah there were two it's, it's, it's funny that there's two like massive um, mobile phones or slash cell phone giants which were Nokia and, and Blackberry and if you told someone in the early 2000s that there'd be no Nokia or Blackberry anymore, really, and their companies would be worth about one one hundredth of what they would have been at the time, I think people would have found that very difficult um, and probably wouldn't have jumped on it. But yeah, in the end, obviously, Google developed their own phone and, and Samsung are a huge player in the market. And you have a lot of the uh, Jap- um, Chinese, rather, sorry, phone companies like Huawei and stuff. 
so didn't, yeah. didn't Nokia do like a re-release of, of like one of their classic models a couple of years ago if I recall yeah I know but it's not like it's not achieving the same cultural penetration oh god no of course them. not of course not yeah I mean it's a bit like bringing out like a, a retro Playstation or a retro N64 mm. or something like pe- some people will go in for it but no one's really going to use it as their day to day like imagine not having a smartphone now and you know just just to leave the house mark really you know if you're going somewhere you don't know what do you do you pull up your phone and your phone gets you there it's no problem and you don't have to think about it it's like well you're sat you're out and you're like i wonder what what the answer to this question is or i wonder what the football score is or you know i wonder what i'm having for dinner tonight i'm just gonna do this uh that that kind of thing i just i can't imagine living without a smartphone now and blackberries yeah. were sort of the proto version of that before apple completely perfected it um halfway through the 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 2000s and late 2000s blackberry were already already on their way out unfortunately so yeah so it's a rags to riches back to rags story but um i'm sure everybody that was kind of at the top end of the company that we see in there walked away with quite a lot of money from from um research in motion but yeah definitely worth a watch um interesting but not going to change the world this movie all right uh, that's all we got this week in terms of what we've been watching. So we'll bounce over to what we've been playing. Uh, I have, since last week, I have played and I've beaten Mario, Super Mario Wonder. Oh, um, wow. yeah, it's, look, it's not a particularly long game. How long does it take game. to beat? I was going to say, yeah. I'd say you can kind of mainline through the game in, I don't know, seven to eight hours. Okay, not too bad. Uh, that is kind of doing the bulk of like the core gameplay uh, critical path um but there are some secret levels as well uh which i've not got to yet and i'll go back and <laughs> the mario wonder version of the celeste seasides is it uh well actually it's kind of like going back to if you ever played super mario world there were like the star secret star levels um yeah. even actually past that then there's the secret levels past that like groovy and i can't remember what the hell they were called um I think that this game is uh, is very very good. Um, I've some seen some people talking about you know it's like one of the best platforms in years. It is the best two D Mario game since Super Mario World. Um, I think it's comparable to Super Mario World. I I don't have any uh, objections to that. I do think that there's a level of creativity with this game, and there's a level of uh, imagination and just joy that you get with mario games and certainly some of the stuff from the 3d games they've 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 brought over to the 2d game and you know it, it is by far the best 2d mario game in a, in a long long time um and it's not to say that you know a couple of like the last new super mario bro games were bad but it was more just they were kind of variations on a on a theme um and like the coin gimmick in mario bros new mario bros 2 wasn't particularly interesting and yeah it had been certainly a series that had needed to be kind of revitalized and uh as we were talking last week the way they went around that was to i don't know just go on a massive acid bender and see what happened um and like so the core kind of selling point of this game is the idea that every level has uh kind of a a sort of like trippy flower that when you find completely changes the level in a particular way um so you'll have one level and one of my favorite levels in the game you have these uh these cats i guess they're kind of like cats where if they spot you they they kind of open their mouth up really really wide and they'll kind of consume anything they come across and that could be anything it could be a goomba it could be you could be whatever 
And then when you find the, the, the flower kind of around about the halfway point, you then turn into a Goomba and you can't jump. You have like basically no kind of abilities other than walking left or right. And then the level is designed around that and, and you know, kind of becomes somewhat of a stealth level where you've got trees that you can hide behind and you have to kind of wait for the, the cats to go past you and carry on. And, you know, it's a very kind of well-designed level. But my biggest issue with the game, and one of the things that, you know, people have spoken about, is particularly in terms of this idea of uh, bringing over kind of themes from the, the 3D games, particularly, um, I guess, like Super Mario World and Land 3D, is this idea of kind of constantly bringing in, bringing in new uh, elements, new obstacles, new kind of just like a, a gimmick that lasts for a level and then you never see again. And I can't explain why exactly, but like in the 3D games, that never particularly bothered me. But in this game, I, I think it could be just because they do some stuff that I think is really fun and interesting in the 2D space, but then they don't come back to it or they don't, they don't kind of really utilize it to its full potential. So you're just kind of left wanting more, which I guess in some ways can be good, but I don't know. I just, I feel like, I, I feel like in particular that, that level where you play as a Goomba, I was just like, oh, you could have easily done like another two or three levels like this and kind of really like explored this idea to its fullest. And so, you know, it's, it's certainly in the case that like it does feel like every level does feel different and i think a couple of levels do use like you know there's one level where um you turn into this kind of gelatinous blob and you can stick to walls and you kind of like go up and around and find like a, a, a completely kind of different part of the the, the area to explore and i think mm. they come back to that once or twice um but there's just yeah there's a couple of ideas they have where they just don't really explore it to its fullest i like that though um that sounds like good variety to me. It's just like, let's do a fun thing and see how this goes. It, no, look, I, again, like there's no level that I'm like, ah, whatever, this does nothing for me. But I, I think maybe it's just a fucking level design nerd part of me where I'm like, I just, yeah, you, you could do so much more with this. Because and you I, are now a claimed video games developer, Mark Robinson. Oh, look, until I actually ship that fucking thing, I'm not, all right, I'm not, I'm not taking that title just yet. Um, <laughs> And, oh God, what was the other thing I was going to say? Yeah, actually, so I, I think one of the big issues that I have with the game is that I think that the game has, like, a, a couple of, like, really great levels, but I think it mostly has just, like, very good levels. Like, there's, there's, a, there's a flaw that, you know, Nintendo will never go under, and part of that, and, and people have been talking about this this week, that a lot of the people that worked on this game have been working at Nintendo, have been working on Mario games for like the last 30 odd years. And that's part of like why there's a, a certain kind of level of quality that, that these games always hit because it's like, you know, these people have, have refined this fucking thing down to a sheen. And it's part of the problem that you get with like a lot of the bigger studios where that kind of level of turnover, and this goes for any fucking walk of life. Like, you're better having someone that you can retain who knows everything about a company than fucking, you know, firing them and bringing someone else that you have to train back up. And it's just, it's just not a fucking like feasible, practical way to do these sorts of things. And certainly when it comes to video games and that kind of level of creativity that you need. Um, so there, there's a flaw that like Mario games just won't go under, but with this game, there's a, a ceiling which they kind of hit a couple of times but they don't kind of bang out 
those kind of levels on a, on a regular basis in a way that, you know, when I think about the the kind of excellence of platforming games of this kind of golden generation over like the last 10, 15 years, your Super Meat Boys, your Celeste, your Rayman Origins, um, Mario Wonder gets there at points, but I think there's just kind of a consistency that it doesn't quite reach. Now, that is not to say that if you play this game, you're at any point going to have a bad time of it. It's just not the case. It's too fucking... It's too imaginative with its ideas. There's a bit where King Boo is singing to the left of the screen while you're on a scrolling uh, uh, level. Um, there's there's just... Yeah, there's just so many fucking things that it does that you're like, all right, yeah, this, this is pretty cool. Um, it's weird, like, listening to you describe it because, I mean, I've seen clips and I literally just 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 finished the game that I'm about to talk about in a minute so I'm going to get to it next everything you described to me sounds rad so no, I don't but here's the thing it is it is rad there is no what, part of me that is like what is missing for you like there must be something missing in this formula it's, like, it's this not mix. that it's it's not that it's missing I just think that like the the kind of standard in terms of the the levels is a couple of times really great but for most of the time it's just good um I think that they do one thing. So one of the, the things that this game has is called like a badge system. So you, um, on top of like your standard Mario moveset, you can apply a, a badge and that thing will give you a, uh, an additional um, a mechanic. And that could be anything from like a small kind of little paraglider that lets you kind of float along a little bit further. Uh, Luigi's um, kind of additional sort of jump, height thing that he has from mario 2 um a uh like an additional wall jump so a, a bunch and then uh the badges i, I think i'll like split into three categories so you've got like the kind of movement uh badges then you've got ones that are based on um you can have like an additional power up at the start of a level and then there's the ones on the right that other than one which just kind of constantly has you jumping on a level i'm not entirely sure what the rest of them are yet and that's a nice little feature. Um, I think there's probably more they can do with that. And I'm sure like when they do Mario Wonder 2, which they'll absolutely do. And we'll talk about why in, in the news. Um, I think there's probably a little bit of refinement they can do with that. Um, I'm not exactly sure. Do they do sure. Mario Wonder 2 though? Or do they just do another 2D Mario game and call it something else? No, I, I think they'll do a Mario Wonder 2. I, I think there's, again, I think there's so much here like that's kind of left on the table, on the cutting room floor, that I think that they, they, they could easily do a Mario Wonder 2 with a bunch of these gimmicks and then some. Um, and and I think the issue I have is like, so you have these badges and what they do is they'll have levels that are specifically designed around that particular uh, mechanic. So you'll have like one level that is purely based on wall jumping. And these levels tend to be typically a little bit shorter, but they're solely focused on like, hey, Here's this badge. Here's how you use it. Now go and use it. And I think, again, it's just one of those things where they they have like uh, maybe like two or three levels like this and they're, they're, they increase in difficulty. So the first level, the first time you do it, it's kind of like to introduce you to that mechanic. And then by the time you get to like the second or third level, it, it places you in a slightly kind of more difficult uh, uh, level to kind of really utilize that. And I think it's just one of the things where it's like, I could be happy having like even more of these levels. Maybe I'm being greedy. I don't know. I just, I feel like there's just more. There's, there's more they could do with it. Um, I think one of the things as well is like the, uh, I think it was Mario Land 3D, where you got to the end of that game and then it turned out there was like, you only did half the game and there was so much more. 
where with this, it's just like the six worlds and then the final boss and then that's it. And so you kind the- of feel shortchanged by it then almost. I guess maybe a little bit. It does feel like it's a bit shorter. I, I think maybe part of it is the um, an unfair comparison to like the 3D games, which you know are, are a lot more kind of packed. There's a lot more to do. That you know they do, they're longer games. They can go from anywhere from like 12 to 20 hours. Where this is a little bit shorter in comparison. And is it because some- you charge pretty much the same amount? Like. You, you pay the same amount for this that you'd pay for Odyssey, for instance. I, I think I want to say that this was probably like, so I paid 50 quid for this. And I think mainline kind of standard Nintendo games are 60. I want to say, I'd say Odyssey it was probably 60 quid. Right. So yeah, I, mean, I, paid, I paid 37 pounds for it. So, uh, yeah, well, well again, enjoy that <laughs> fucking, uh, currency conversion and whatnot. Yep. Um, I don't know. It, look, again, it's a really, really good game. You know, I gave it four out of five stars. It's absolutely worth playing. Um, you know, I, I, by no means, by no means am I saying do not play Mario Wonder. Absolutely play this game. Yeah. I just think that some people have been really hyping this up as like one of the best things of the year. And I think it's more, it's just, it's a, it's a really solid platformer um, that I'm, I'm glad exists. And I'm glad it, it does a couple of like new and interesting things. I just I don't think it's quite as like you know awe inspiring and, and and like revolutionary as some people make it out to be. <laughs> you want to take it down a peg or two? Just 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 a little bit, just a little bit. Yeah, but you're still saying it's like an eight out of ten game. But it's absolutely yeah. an eight, eight out of ten for sure, certainly. Yeah. But yeah. your yeah, so but your thing is like it's an eight out of ten. But y- if it's a Mario game, you f- you you want to hire it to hold it to a higher standard. Yeah, like if I, this I, was just a if this was an off the shelf platformer that somebody had just kind of developed, like it, you probably would rate it higher than that. I reckon. Potentially, I I can see that being a sort of thing as well. Maybe not though, just because of my particular affinity for platforming games. Yeah. I th- you are the platforming prodigy. So I am. I am the self-professed platforming prodigy. To, to argue with you. <laughs> uh, so yeah, that's that. Um, you know, I'm, I'm looking forward to talking with you guys more about it over the next coming weeks. And mm. um, yeah, you know, I, I, I'm really looking forward to playing it. I I've seen a lot of cool stuff, like in little random clips and gifts and things here, here and there. So yeah, I'm I'm, I'm hyped to play it. Yeah, I mean, look, there's there's probably a decent chance that it will sneak into my top 10. But, you know, I'm very conscious, obviously, of the fact that we're not too far away from doing the Game of the Year recordings. And mm. I, I can't see that putting up too much of a fight compared to some of the other things that have come out this year. Mm, yeah. No, agree um, that it it's a very, very packed year um, with a lot of good games. And this particular month, indeed. Oh, uh, this like last month period. has been ridiculous. Loads like, I, of good games. I saw the Alan Wake 2 reviews from the other day and I was like, wow. Like, Alan Wake 2 is not the kind of game that I want to play. Um, and I probably <laughs> I probably won't get to it just because of the other things I want to play. But, you know, I, I imagine um, in particular, I don't know about Garrett, but I, in particular I know Dave and Barry because I know they're big, like, control freaks um, in terms of the game control, not just, you know, their personalities. <laughs> I was going to say, you're just burying the co-hosts. <laughs> this isn't um, going to go well for you on Game of the Year if you do that. Yeah, so I, I wonder kind of what that friction might come up where, like, I, I, I don't know if you'll probably fucking get to it by, by you know, December. Um and it could be an issue where it could maybe legitimately actually be the game of the year, but only, you know, two of us or three of us potentially have played it or give a shit about it. Um, well, we'll see. We'll see. I think, we'll see. Yeah. We'll um, see. The, the other thing 
that I have been playing uh, is a game called El Paso Elsewhere, um, which is a uh, indie title by a guy called um, I don't know the exact pronounce pronunciation, but I'm going to say Zalavia Nelson Jr. Um, who? How are you spelling this? Uh, X A L A V I E R. Like how it's probably like Javier or Xavier. Um, Maybe but it, dep- yeah. it, it, it depends on um, like his heritage, whether it's yeah. like a more Portuguese uh, pronunciation or Spanish. See, I'm going down the, the Xavier Woods route in terms of my pronunciation, but uh, <laughs> yeah, no, he's um, he's an indie dev. He's fairly prolific. Um, he the last thing he came out with that I remember um, was uh, the oh God, what was it called? Space Warlord Organ Trading Simulator. I remember that as being the greatest named video game of that year. With the greatest named dog being Chad Shakespeare. Who, Chad uh, Shakespeare, yeah. The little was, sort of was, like black and black and green dog. Was wrong in a little space boy suit, category. I, um, I don't know if he was in a space suit, but he certainly was more than willing to trade hearts around the, the, the galaxy. Uh, in exchange for coin, so God bless Chad Shakespeare. <laughs> they were giving him hearts; he was giving them coin. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I, I kind of like labelled it as like grindcore the video game, just in terms of just like the kind of like <laughs> raw ugliness of it. Um, Cannibal corpse in the game, yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, to some degree, yeah. But yeah, he's back with this El Paso elsewhere, and to if I was to just kind of sum this up very briefly, it's basically a spiritual successor to Max Payne one and two. Um. And, you know, this is a thing that I think is becoming more common where we're seeing indie developers take a stab at games that they really liked from the 90s and early to mid 2000s that, um, you know, the the AAA space isn't really entertaining anymore for whatever reason it could be, uh, whether it's like the IP is buried under the vaults of fucking Embracer somewhere, or maybe it uses a particular type of like graphical style or control scheme that now just kind of seems outdated uh but we've seen a bunch of games over the last i don't know five years or so i think of the likes of signalis from last year uh there was a great game game a couple of years ago called a uh was that was it a bug's fable i can't remember the exact name but it was basically doing like uh paper mario that i really liked uh and, and there was actually a game a couple of days ago announced called crow country which basically look like the Final Fantasy VII aesthetic in terms of the models, uh, but using the kind of tank controls of, like, the original Resident Evil, uh, which the demo for that... What's that? With crows? Uh, No, Crow Country is a... It's a a, a theme park, like an abandoned theme park somewhere in America. Um, I thought you got to play as a crow, in which case I was in. No, but I think you should at least, like, have a look at it. The demo is available to get from uh, the Steam store, uh, but just, you know, that Final Fantasy VII aesthetic, which I'm honestly surprised that more people haven't kind of jumped on because it's such a... Even though, obviously, you look at those models today and it looks a bit ridiculous, it's a very specific and iconic visual style. And I think part of that is just because no one else has, like, really tried to do anything like it um, since, you know, we've we've gone more kind of high fidelity or we've gone more pixel style. But I do think we're starting to see more people jump into that PS1 and PS2 uh, era in terms of visual fidelity and kind of really play around with it. And, and we're seeing some really interesting things. Again, like I say, Signalis from last year. Um, I absolutely like adore the way that that thing looks. Um, and I appreciate that it plays in a way where, you know, one of the things I think about when it comes to... and, and 
part of this is partially down to the game that I'm making that is based off of, you know, PS1 era puzzle games is that a lot of the time we have a fond memory or a fond nostalgia for games from that era, but we haven't played them in a fucking day and age. And sometimes we go back and play them and we realize that some part of the control scheme doesn't really work for us now because like we have sort of a standard way that controls work now a lot of the time that comes down to like the way that the camera handles like back in the day a lot of the time the camera would rotate by pressing l1 or r1 and that just doesn't really work anymore like i was playing spyro the dragon not too long ago and the fucking camera in that thing is like near impenetrable in terms of its uh kind of it's fluidity and, and like it's functionality where we have kind of a standard sort of preset in our mind now of like a third person game where just hey you just you immediately go to the right analog stick and the camera kind of moves around as you want and so one of the things that you know you tend to get now with a lot of modern games that are based on that older era is they they remind you of that era and those games but they introduce like small quality of life features that you don't realize are like part of like the modern games uh, and you just think that they were always there or maybe like some part of the way that they look like Shovel Knight for example is obviously a homage to, to the 8-bit era of NES games but you look at some of the things it does with like the parallax scrolling and, and some of the effects and that just simply wasn't possible on, on the NES just technically wouldn't be possible but it's still within that particular palette and that particular visual style that you don't really, unless you're really fucking like a nerd for these things, which I am, and you're really looking for it, you don't kind of think about it. You just take it for granted. And so yeah, I think and no it, one owns a style of video. No, game of course well. not. Of course not. Like if they did, it would be a disaster. It's like, mm. imagine someone that owned horror films and like every time you wanted to make a horror film, you had to pay, I don't know, let's go with Wes Craven. You had to pay Wes Craven like $100,000 to make a horror movie. Um, so yeah, I, I do like, I do like the style, like, I don't want to say parodies, but like style influences and, and things that we've been seeing from indie developers in like the last 10, 15 years. I think it's really, really cool that, you know, people are just showing off their inspirations in the form of art styles that they're bringing to people. And it almost highlights, you know, if when people get bent out of shape about stuff being an homage to something else and, I never understand it because all it does really then is just highlight how great the original version of that is and that people can still go out and get involved with it and stuff. I Yeah, it's... Yeah, I, this, this... What is it about this game then, Mark, that, that kind uh, of... I was going to say, this is a really long, fucking long-winded way of saying that yeah. I... I <laughs> basically, yeah, this game is, is doing Max Payne 1 and 2. And actually, interestingly enough, with Max Payne 1 and 2... Um, is that like even fucking you know, by the time that um, uh, they got to Max Payne 3 like that was a, a totally different feeling game you know it, it had certain elements obviously of the first two but like the, the, the kind of noir grittiness of the first two is gone in, in place of almost like a fucking Grand Theft Auto Scarface kind of vibe um, uh, kind of approach to it uh, but also just like the way that the, the game controls. Now, I haven't played Max Payne 3 in a hot minute, but from what I remember when I played at the time, it's like, all right, yeah, we're in a post-Gears of War era now in terms of third-person action games, and it was very much more in that line of things compared to 
the slightly more kind of stiff uh, kind of vibe of Max Payne 1 and 2. So, you know, the whole idea of, like, crouching behind a wall and whatnot, nah, none of that. You just, you know, you, you kind of put yourself up against a wall, put yourself up against a pillar and hope that no bullets uh, kind of hit you. And obviously, one of the things with Max Payne at the time was the the idea of the bullet time, which was, um, you know, this kind of really sort of revolutionary thing that was born out, obviously, out of, of the Matrix uh, and was one of the kind of key selling points of, of, like, Max Payne. You know, the idea that you have a couple of enemies, you go into bullet time, you're slow moving down, you're diving around a corner, you're taking out a couple of guys, uh, and, and it's just, it was a just a fucking great gimmick, such a great mechanic. Um, yeah. And basically, El Paso Elsewhere just does all of these things, and it does it in a way that is totally like, as, as soon as you start playing it, you're like, yep, I understand exactly what this game wants to be. You have painkillers, which is your your uh, health, uh, you know, health supply. Okay, um, that is directly out of Max Payne. <laughs> you have, like, fucking dual-wielding guns, um, and um, you have this kind of very gritty voiceover that's actually uh, voiced by uh, Nelson Juni himself, who's actually a pretty fucking good voice actor, in fairness. Um, and and it just has all of the the, the, the kind of tone and elements that you would think of a, of a Max Payne game, but being done here. And the story in particular, so uh, you play a guy called um, James Savage, who uh, he's a vampire hunter who uh, is tracking down his ex-girlfriend who happens to be a vampire and who is bent on uh, ending the world. And you're going through, through you're in like a uh, kind of like a hotel or hostel and you're going down elevator level by level uh, and with the game getting kind of like stranger and stranger and more demented and more bent out of shape with each passing level. Uh, and, you know, you've got hordes of these kind of monstrous creatures coming towards you um, and, you know, very much kind of using the the Max Payne flow of, like, the gun combat and, and slowing down and taking painkillers and that kind of stuff. Um, but it's done in the idea... I, did you ever play Die Hard on the PS1, part of that Die Hard trilogy? Yes, but I, I cannot remember any details about it, really. So, um, there's actually a little bit of that. And so, the idea with the... Because the Die Hard trilogy was split into three uh, games. Uh, one of them was like a first-person driving game. One of them was like a kind of light rail uh, sort of virtual cop thing. And then the original Die Hard, uh, you, it was like a over-the-shoulder third-person, um, but you're making your way up the Nakatomi... It was Nakatomi that, Tower, right? Nak- Nakatomi, yeah. yeah. Nakatomi uh, Plaza. You, you, Nakatomi Plaza, yeah. You were making your way up it level by level. Um, you know, the kind of... The, the flow and the structure of the levels is quite similar. You had a kind of specific space, but obviously the environments would change slightly from starting off in the car park, making your way up to the office levels and that kind of thing. And you're just kind of wiping out bad guys for each level. This kind of has a slightly similar uh, kind of flow to it in that sense, uh, except that um, the idea is you get basically to the end of the level. You're trying to clear out monsters. You're trying to find um, hostages that have been uh, kidnapped. And you're trying to rescue them. And once you get to the end, once you find the last hostage, the level kind of goes into a shutdown. It gets very dark, very demented. And you have like more enemies, like a a flood of enemies coming towards you. And you're basically trying to clear them out to get back to the elevator to take yourself down to, to the next area. Um, and it just it follows that flow for, I think I'm about eight or nine levels in now. And I think for the most part, that whole process works really well. I think the visual style of it, again, it's very much aping that PS2 era. And I think it you know does a really serviceable job 
to that era. I think one thing of note is you can definitely tell that this is a game that's being made with a very specific budget, with a very kind of limited amount of resources, um, which I'm fine with because I do think that you should be able to, you know, like a lot of great games are made when they're done with particular restraints, which I kind of wish a lot of fucking AAA games would kind of take into to note sometimes. Um, so a lot of the areas, certainly like I've been in so far, they're all kind of basically like, you know, you take the one map and then you sort of change the parameters a little bit, a little bit, you make them a little bit bigger, you add more monsters in and you can do that for a bunch of levels. And they all kind of look and feel the same, but, you know, you're going through the early paces of the game. I do think that there's probably, like, a limit to the amount of levels you should do that have a particular visual style before you change it up a little bit. And it has started to change up now, but I think it's probably a couple of levels too late. Like, for the first, I don't know, six levels or so, you only have one particular type of enemy that you're dealing with. And it's kind of way too late before they introduce the next type of enemy that sort of changes up the way that you play the game and your kind of strategy. So I think it's a, it, it, it tries to use those resources too often um, before it kind of brings up the, the sort of the next gimmick or the next mechanic you're working with. But outside of that, I think this is a really solid third-person shooter. I think it, pay, it plays uh, uh, homage to its source material really well, really faithfully. Like if you like those Max Payne games, and a lot of people do, I think yeah. if if you want to scratch that itch, I think this game will scratch that. Um, I think it's probably a little bit more action orientated than Max Payne was. I think that was a little bit more slower, a little bit more methodical. Um, where I think it was this, more of a corridor game, right? As well, I don't know. Is this similar to that? Yeah, yeah. This is, I'd say, even more corridor like than. Okay. Um, than uh than than max Payne was yeah, I, I i hear action adventure and i think like more open world-esque but yeah no, this is definitely linear corridor based um you know you're going to like one kind of hotel lobby and then there's like three or four ways you can go but a lot of the time they just go into like kind of cul-de-sacs or like into a room whatever so you, you know you can pick up some ammo or whatever then you come back and then you progress from there um i i'm gonna play it more because i do want to see like how the levels vary up and how the the kind of like the tonal look of it changes um i think barry took a, a a screen grab at one point and it looked like he was in some sort of graveyard or something so which i would imagine makes sense con- considering the the source material but yeah I, I think this game's pretty fucking rad um i don't know what the, the turnaround on it was like if i take when space lord organ trading simulator came out which was i think at the end of i want to say 2021 uh, that's a fairly short dev cycle for a game of what I, this scale is, um, which I think is part of why I think you see kind of a lot of similar assets being used, which I, you know I think for the most part is is done fairly effectively. Um, I'm a little bit worried though that it might use those assets for too long before it kind of bounces onto to the next area. So um, I, I think I saw that this game is about 12 hours long, which might be a little bit. Too long, but we'll see. Um, I don't know if I'll finish it before end of the year because uh, you know there's a few things I want to get to. But it's the kind of thing that I can kind of pick up at night, play a, a level or two on the Steam Deck, and it's it's perfectly suited for that. Um, Game Pass? Not on Game Pass, no. No. Oh. No. Um, you'll be picking this up on Steam. Actually, let me just uh, let me check for you. How much is this bad boy going for at the moment? 
Uh, it's 20 quid, which I think is totally reasonable uh, yeah. for what it is. Not too bad. Oh. Not too bad. So that, um, yeah, that is El Paso Elsewhere. Uh, I am going to shut up for a bit now. Uh, and Jack, you've platinum Spider-Man 2 in a week. <laughs> to be more accurate, I platinum Spider-Man 2 in six days, yes. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> All right, fair enough. Mark, I absolutely ripped through this game, my friend. It is... Oh, it's just everything I've wanted it to be. You ever, you ever play a video game? Like, or, you know, there's a movie coming out or a band are releasing an album that you like or you're going out for a rad meal and it just delivers. <laughs> like, it just hits every single beat that you wanted it to hit. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's Spider-Man 2. It's, do we take what we liked about Spider-Man and the way that they nailed the story and then the way that they kind of improved on the mechanics in Miles Morales combine those two things and still make a brilliant video game that is better than both of those games because that's what they've done uh it's just great <laughs> there's from head to toe start to finish i think the story is excellently well written like the main critical path is is just a very very compelling spider-man story if you were to see it as a film you know we've seen derivations of some of the characters in there before i know i'm not ruining anything because obviously all of this stuff is in the trailer but we see venom and we see like lizard uh so we get like the, the traditional kind of spider-man rogues gallery um as it were and a couple of other ones which i won't ruin um for people to discover as they're playing through the game uh and that main critical path story is very very good and it's paced well and you know just the, hits the right notes at the right time uh, I think Craven the Hunter is really cool in the game um, we sort of dabble into a little bit of his backstory but what I like about him is he's just a big angry dude who's coming to like hunt things <laughs> with a name like Craven the Hunter you're surprised right um, but they just sort of portray him as you know somebody who's he's always coming over to hunt like the the super villains and you know test his strength against uh, against the the most hardcore uh, bad guys in, in New York City um, because no one's kind of going to miss them um, and then obviously within that gets mixed up with Spider-Man because Spider-Man doesn't kill people and that's kind of the point right um, so I think that whole arc is executed very well as is the Venom arc the side stuff in the game the friendly neighbourhood Spider-Man missions in particular are pitch perfect uh, there's literally a mission where you are trying to find someone's granddad who has dementia and he's got a little bit lost uh, and then you sit on a bench with him for like a couple of minutes and he just tells you the story about how he met his wife and you know they're just sat on the bench him and like Miles Morales, if you do as Miles Morales or, or if you do it as Peter, either way you can, you know, so it's just a great conversation. Um, the, 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 two, the two Spider-Man gimmick, I think it's done really well in the sort of switch in and switch out. Um, it happens very quickly. It has the coolest fast travel I've ever seen in a game, Mark. Um, so I don't know if you've seen anything of this, but... I've not. Basic- I've, I've heard about it being uh, pretty spectacular, though insane so you've got to do missions in in the various districts of the game um and there's like three levels to to unlocking various things in the district but the second level is you unlock fast travel and what you do is you just point to the map and you hold down the triangle button and it just teleports you there there is no loading time it teleports you there and you're immediately flying in on the new web wings gimmick 
within a second of pressing the button and then you regain control of the character like a second later after that and it's just so seamless the way it's transitioned it's absolutely spot on it's it makes a mockery of fast travel in all other games because you know you've always got a a base or a point where you've got to go to and it could be somewhere near um a mission but you still got to travel an extra few hundred yards or whatever afterwards whereas this you just point to where you want to go bang it drops you there right away which i think is super super cool and it's it makes doing the missions in the district worth it um i do think that all of the collectible stuff in the game leads to cool stuff as well you know how some games mark you just do all the collectibles and you might get like a, a new piece of gear or something or you know a very small interaction most of the collectible stuff in this game leads to either a boss battle or you know a, um, a sort of unlocked bit of dialogue between other characters and a little bit of storyline a little bit of padding it makes it all feel worthwhile doing it aside from just locking unlocking fast travel it's just executed very well. Uh, I, I like the combat. The only thing I don't like about the combat is just every game has to have parrying now. Are we just, is that just, is we, we're doing parrying, everyone? Wait, t- let, me, let me tell you about Lies of P, Jack. <laughs> I know, but fuck off. Like, in a, in a Spider-Man game, I don't want or need parrying. Thank you very much. Yeah, um, but, I, but keep in mind, keep in no. mind, Jack, that like the, the, no, the, the Spider-Man combat, you know, the, the kind of, the nebulous of that is based off of the Arkham Asylum combat, and that thing had parrying as well, and that was some 12, 13 years ago. Yeah, but the thing is, Batman has to parry, because he's a big shithouse in a big costume. Spider-Man can move out of the way. <laughs> so you can jump out of the way of the attacks that you can parry, but it, it sort of heavily encourages you to parry, um, and I, ju- I just don't need that. But that I, is I the only... I, I can't remember from the original Spider-Man, but is it because I, I've seen other games do this recently... Um, uh, it's Ungar- all about dodge timing on the other game. No, but like Unguard does this where you have, and actually I think even fucking Arkham Asylum had this as well, where there'd be certain enemies where it was asking you to dodge and then some of them were asking you to parry and depending on like how it highlights the attack would let you know kind of which one you had to do. Like, does Spider-Man 2 do that? Yeah, it does. Um, there are some attacks that are sort of like undodgeable and those are the ones you either jump out of the way of or parry. Yeah. I just, I just don't need it. <laughs> I really don't. Uh, I just think it's... Well, Jack, just make your own game then and then don't have any parry in it. <laughs> no, but like I, that, that's the only thing in this game that I don't like, but I don't think it's this game's fault. I think every modern game has this. Like the Assassin's Creed combat wasn't that great and it was mainly because of the parrying. Uh, that, I, that I didn't like it. The other games felt more fun. They were more slashy, slashy. Uh, and like as you upgraded your weapons, you found it easier to slashy slash through enemies. There is like a that's why Assassin's Creed um, kind of encourages you to use stealth. And a lot of a lot of this game, really, if you're clearing out a base, you know how in the previous games, if you want to clear out a base with stealth, you'd have to go into various bits of the rafters, Mark. Yeah. It, um, again, it basically just did fucking Arkham Asylum, but you're a Spider Man. It made no sense. Uh, it makes a lot of sense. You've got webs that you can stick people to walls and ceilings. Nah, with. nah, it nah, makes nah. more you're, sense you're than Batman. Spider Man, you fucking just jump it. Nah, because Batman hangs around in the right. He's Sting, basically. That's his fucking gimmick, all right? Batman is a big like shit house in a costume, where Spider Man can crawl on walls and flip and be upside down and stuff. Yeah, but Batman's only human, all right? He's got to use stealth. <laughs> yeah, but so, but like Spider Man, like. You want to make life easier for yourself. 
you can Spider-Man around all you want. Uh, but at the end of the day, like, it's a lot easier to clear something out with stealth, isn't it? Um, but anyway, you can use, like, a web shot to create your own sort of web lines in the rafters. So if there's someone at an angle that you can't kind of suck up into the rafters, you can sort of use it. And there's also an unlock where you can do two people at the same time uh, and, 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 and like, you know, web them up and put them up in the rafters, which is brilliant. Uh, once you unlock that, it's massively, massively OP in some of the bases when you're clearing them out. Uh, but what I think is cool is some of the hunter bases, as you get maybe halfway through the game, start employing drones. So you can't just stay above ground the whole time and clear the bases out. You have to be a little bit more tactical about it, which I think is cool. I yeah, I, 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 think, guess- I think the original Spider-Man did think I, I remember there being bases I was clearing out, and, and I do remember the, the difficulty well, the- increasing where you really just couldn't stay stationary. Yeah, so the original Spider-Man game, you could stay stealth until you got seen, and then you couldn't go back into stealth. That was um, it, yeah. And it just chucked things at you. And up to a certain point, once you'd taken out all the enemies, if there was different waves, when the next wave came in, they didn't come in um, not knowing where you are. They just came and straight attacked you, which was wrong. And they fixed that with Miles Morales. And it's the same system here as it is in Miles, which is massively improved. Uh, I would say, and if you do want to stick on that stealth thing, you can do it. But if you also want to, you know, get in amongst it and fight, and there's the combat things are brilliant, like the the web arm abilities and the evolved venom abilities for uh, for Miles. I think they're really cool. And then you know, spoiler alert, you unlock some different uh, <laughs> different abilities as you go deeper in the game and get different suits and stuff like that, um, which I won't go into too much because it will be too much of a spoiler uh and just everything about the game super kinetic you know the the crimes and stuff are still there in districts but you don't have to do them if you don't want to but sometimes if you do go there you have the other (laughs) spider-man and the other spider-man will be helping you out whoever it is um and you two clear it out together and then there's these brilliant little moments at the end of them finishing a fight there's one where they do the spider-man point at each other like from the meme yeah, and then there's yeah, another yeah. one where they both go to one goes to high five the other one goes to shake hands and then they sort of awkwardly shrug at each other and then bring it in for a hug and it's just those little details like that those little moments in the game so are uh, you that, are you in the game are you like GTA 5 style bouncing between either Spider-Man whenever you want or are you like playing a, a specific one during whatever kind of part of the story you're in majority of the game you can be whoever you want and then for like a specific mission to continue the main critical path of the game there are some that require you being a spider-man okay and which and makes they, sense really and and they have like they have like specific abilities to each spider-man right they do yeah yeah okay. they do the one thing i was going to ask with that then did you find that you had like a, a particular preference to one over the other? Because obviously like, no, I, I, I don't want to. <laughs> so I've been listening to a bunch of last year's God of uh, uh, game of the year. And uh, you know, we, we, you know, did not like God of war um, spoiler for anyone who didn't listen to last year's Except show. Except me who thought God of war was very good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And one of the things in particular that I didn't like was the fact that I, I, they, you know, the game forces the players Atreus for a lot of it. And I thought to actually play as him was quite shit. Uh, and it just made me long to play as Kratos. Is there like no way? No, no with this, no, it's, no, yeah, no. Okay, both cool. Spider, both Spider Men are very cool to play. Yeah. At. Although like, I guess you know- particularly what you're saying there as well, the fact that for most of the game you can play as either one. Where with God of War, it does force you to play as as 
uh, one character to the other. So, you know. Uh, yeah. Do you know what makes me laugh? It's like every time you guys find a new way to bury God of War, <laughs> we took a completely different game. Uh, I love it. Keep it up. I feel like this is Hey, they're, they're, they're both first-party Sony games. They're, you know, they're vaguely similar. No. Uh, yeah. Um, this is a lot better than God of War. <laughs> I'll tell you that right now. Right. And I feel like you will enjoy it more than God of War. I, well. I'm looking forward to playing it. I am. And you know what? The, the, there was one thing from the first game that I was just like, I don't need these things. And it was this like stealth sections with MJ where she just had to sneak around. And it was super lame. Super, super lame. And, you know, if you got caught, that was it. She would scream and then you'd have to go back and kind of sneak your way through. And you think that's going to happen again here. There are three MJ sections. But. They equip her at first with like a taser <laughs> that she can use. Um, and then like to sneak up behind people and shock them. And, you know, she's trying to find that. So that makes it super, like you take people down basically. So it's fine. Then the next time they turn the taser into like a sort of stun gun that you can shoot at people um, rather than just go up behind them and tase them sort of thing. And then the third MJ section, and I'm not going to ruin any of them, it turns into a Gears of War style cover shooter, Mark, where MJ has a weapon <laughs> that, that's been developed for her, and she is going behind cover and she is shooting like um, Venom symbiotes, and it is just. It rocks. <laughs> I was like, this is a completely different game within this game. Uh, and that whole MJ section, I won't say where it is in the story um, and how it happens or why it happens. And again, we know Venom is an enemy and we know Venom has symbiotes. So like, there's no, there's no spoilers in there. But I'm just like, this is a Gears of War style cover shooter with Mary Jane Watson. And it fucking rules. Um, they just, yeah. I think the only thing that maybe some people might get switched off by is you know, some of the puzzles, like the, the genome puzzles or, you know, trying to reassemble kind of codes and stuff um, and decipher things. I know that some people have felt a bit flat about that in the first game. That stuff's here, but it's there's not a lot of it. Um, and yeah, one of my favourite bits, and I'll end with this, is that, again, it manages... To, like I say, turn some of the things that were negatives before into strengths. One of the things that people hated in the first game was the dude that had the pigeons, you remember? Uh, yes, yes. Howard. Mark, I'm not joking when I say that one of the emotional highlights of the game, for me, is Peter's interaction with Howard and the Howard side mission around pigeons in this game. It doesn't involve chasing down anything, which is a massive bonus but it's just picture perfect. And it basically, this guy's probably a heel to some people and it turns him massively, massively babyface because they started the transition a little bit of Miles Morales and his last kind of interactions, doing this mission as Peter is just so satisfying um, and it's really, really nice. And the thing, that's what I, I like about this game is that you have the massive, sweeping, huge big superhero effects battles that, that that you might want out of this game if you're an adrenaline junkie. But you also have a mission where you hang out with the guy with the pigeons and have a bit of a chat and learn about his life. And stuff like that, to me, is perfect Spider-Man. It's, it's high level, it's in space, but there's the friendly neighbourhood Spider-Man element to it as well. And they get that balance of that really right. And yeah, I got the Platinum Trophy. Sue me. <laughs> Eight percent of people that have played the game have got it, Mark, which is a ridiculously high ratio. That's, that is very high indeed. 
because people are picking this thing clean because it is entertainment from from start to finish and i it it is it's absolutely exploded into my top five games of the year is it my favorite game of the year i'm not sure um i'm gonna mull on it because i finished it yesterday um i'm gonna i'm gonna shoe on it and i'm gonna think about it um put a lot of thought into it before we do game of the year but it's it's up there for me i i think it's very very good and uh yeah get this thing played i think if anyone is listening and they were kind of on the fence for whatever reason if they didn't you know if they played the any of the original spider-man games or even if you liked spider-man 2 kind of on the ps2 or whatever this is just such a brilliant faithful like definition really of what it takes to be a good spider-man game this is now to me the the standard bearer that all superhero games should be held accountable to it is the best superhero game i've ever played I don't think it's close either. How many hours did you put into this bad boy? Mm, I think maybe 25, 30 hours. That is, that is very, cause like the way I was thinking about this is, um, I've got a, I got a whole bunch of CEX credit that I need to, to use. Um, and so I'm hoping that maybe in a few weeks time, sort of towards the end of November, um, there might be a copy or two lying around that I can go pick up from from a CEX and then basically try and kind of binge through this in a couple of days just before we start recording. Because, um, yeah, I, I, it's obviously it's one of the games that I will play for the purpose of Game of the Year. It does seem like it will be up there, so it will get played. It will get played. Yeah, I think uh, there are elements of it that, y- you know, you will really like, and I think genuinely all of the mechanics and the the graphical output and the soundtrack as well everything is 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 spot on but there's some moments in here for like some real kind of spider-man nerds and people that really like the comics and references and things that are in here as well but it doesn't beat you over the head with that either so i think whether you are deep into spider-man and really like spider-man like i do or someone like you just wants to play a kick-ass video game uh, it appeals to both audiences. Yeah. I mean, I know that um, I, I did really like the original Spider-Man. Um, I know that one, our, our game of the year that year, it wasn't my game of the year. Obviously, Celeste was. Um, mm. And the, the issue that I can run into with the, these types of games is that um, sometimes you can have like the sequel. And it's not so much that it's more of the same, but it is kind of like working on a similar similar theme and it, it refines a couple of things it, it does a, a few bits around with like the quality of life features and whatnot but it is very much like a, you know you have done this before but now we've kind of brought in a new story and as long as sorry jack to do this again as, as long as it doesn't fucking drag down the pacing in a way that god of war ragnarok does and by the sounds of it it absolutely doesn't do that oh no <laughs> I th- no no it does not i th- i dare- think i should be Jesus. all right with this there are there are a few moments to breathe in this game where you have some missions again, like, and you don't have to interact with them that are just a bit more chilled out and a little bit more story based and a little bit more world building. But the majority of the main critical path of the game is just like slow build uh, for like (laughs) maybe mm, I would say 90 seconds mark. And then it throws you into the action. Uh, That's, that's, that's my kind of pacing. Sure. All right then. Oh, Hey Peter, he's a teacher now and he teaches miles and they're in a school together. And Oh my God, Sandman attacks. And that's it. (laughs) The game is just a hundred miles an hour from there. Okay. It it rocks. Uh, Spider-Man 2. What game? 
really really good um i actually feel mo- i felt emotionally drained after i finished it because I-, I loved it that much all right all right that's spider-man 2 uh i'm sure um i'm sure over the next couple of weeks we'll probably hear from from dave and, and garrett about it as well um i think david's been playing it this week so yeah we'll, we'll, it's yeah. probably not the last that we'll be talking about this game before game of the year don't think anyone played it as obsessively as i did but yeah, i'm interested <laughs> to hear some other thoughts all right, let's bounce over into the news. A fairly eventful week. Starting off, uh, Unity's controversial runtime fee policy was rushed out, says reports. Um, one major m- mobile game publisher is said to have met with Unity's John Riccatello, the for- now former CEO, uh, after the policy announcement and said, fuck you, we're not paying. The report comes from MobileGamer.biz with anonymous sources from inside Unity providing fresh details. Uh, Last month, as you may have known, uh, Unity updated its fee policy to charge developers per game install, which was met with fury from across the development community. A report at the time from MobileGamer.biz claimed Unity was offering a fee waiver if developers switched to its own uh, mediation platform instead of using rival app Lovin. Unity later rolled back some of its controversial plans, including dropping the fee for any developer using Unity Personal or Unity Plus in addition to two thresholds, making $1 million in gross revenue and hitting a million installs. According to this new report, the company's long-term profitability and falling share price were a deciding factor in the new runtime fee policy. And while there was resistance from within Unity, those concerns were ignored as many staff were unaware of the changes. Sources said a large group of senior senior Unity managers met to discuss the proposed changes, and half of the people in the meeting said the model is too complicated and wouldn't be well received. It felt very rushed, said a source. We had this meeting and were told it was happening, but we were not told a date, and then before we knew it, it was out there. Uh, the story goes from there. You can read about this. Uh, over at Eurogamer. None of this really comes as a surprise. Um, the way that this was launched and executed uh, felt rushed. It felt botched. The communication was utterly appalling. Um, and even from like a few days of it being announced, um, you know, there, there were people reporting from inside Unity um, that this whole thing was very poorly put together, was not kind of you know, rigorously gone through through the ranks to kind of determine like what the the kind of positives and negatives were. And it very much felt like a thing that the top brass went, yep, we're doing this uh, and out the door it went. And then obviously, you know, the, the kind of fallout from that was what it was. And Riccatello is now gone. And the, uh, you know, the lasting impacts of this is yet to still be seen, but there are a number of developers that were claiming that, you know, the project that they were on would be the last project they would do in Unity and they were going to go elsewhere. Uh, I have seen a lot of developers have already moved the project over to uh, Godot or an Unreal or Game Maker or whatever. Um, and, you know, there's going to be a lot of work and goodwill uh, fixing that Unity are going to have to do to kind of win those people back. So, uh, yeah, I don't think anything particularly in this story is surprising. Um, but I do like the idea that one of the kind of bigger publishers out there quite rightly uh, went to, to John Riccatello in Unity and just went, <laughs> give fucks, mate, not a chance. Yeah, 
Um, well, that's how you do it, isn't it? It's just a protest. <laughs> it's if, if everybody sort of got together and went, well, we're not actually going to pay you, so no. I mean, that would tie them up in insane amounts of legal fees, wouldn't it? Because they would need to sue every single publisher. Imagine like 50 or 60 publishers were using this engine and they just all refused to pay. Yeah. What do they do then, you know? It's uh, <laughs> it's the ultimate thing, isn't it? You know, a, a group protest, and uh, yeah, I don't think they would have had any response. But the whole thing was just a bad idea. Um, it was it was clearly the brainchild of the man who is no longer in employment, and I'm very glad that it went away. I'd imagine everyone in t- everyone who works for the company who. Up until that point, I'd say one of the most respected brands in the video game industry, um, and no one really had too much negative to say about it. I'm sure they were absolutely head in hands at the tarnished reputation that this gave them. And But I think there's probably going to be a little bit of a period of rebuilding some trust, wouldn't you say? Yeah, but the problem as well that Unity have, and, you know, because you could look at this from a couple of angles, and um, one of them, the... The very cynical but very realistic uh, situation is that, hey, Unity is is public and they have shareholders that they have to pay. And, you know, we, we see on a constant basis the ways that companies uh, find ways to increase growth, usually at the expense of the people that actually fucking generate their revenue. Um, but even outside of that, Unity has been losing money kind of hand over fist for pretty much since its inception. Uh, you know, making a game engine is not cheap. And the the kind of current model that they have, I'm sure, you know, when Unity came along back in, I don't know, it was like 2008, 2009, I doubt they thought that they would get to the position that they're in now. Um, but the simple fact is, you know, the amount of work they've put into it, and I think I mentioned this at the time, that instead of Unity trying to focus on doing one or two things really, really well, it's tried to do a whole bunch of things some of them better than others, uh, which is just not a sustainable model when you're, you know, having to hire X amount of engineers and God knows who else to get this thing to the point that, you know, they envisioned, envisioned it being. And so this thing's just lost a lot of money. And, and I certainly see the, uh, the, the approach of like, okay, well, how the hell can we raise money? But look, the thing that you do is who are the people that use this? It's developers. All right, we'll fucking talk to developers then and figure out something uh, as, as, a, as, as a working relationship. Don't just come along and say, fuck you all. This is what we're doing now. Oh, and uh, you know what? Fuck it. We'll, we'll charge Microsoft. Don't you worry about it. We'll just charge them. They'll be fine with it. Every single aspect of this was just um, completely asinine in this approach. And... Uh, you know, again, the the reception and here's the thing. You can make the argument that a lot of developers that use Unity would have not been impacted by this because of that um, factor that they were never going to make anywhere near like a million dollars in revenue. But again, that wasn't really the issue. The issue is like the install fee, like the idea that you're going to charge me for someone installing my game once I get past a certain threshold or potentially get past the threshold. And the fact that none of your original communications spoke about anything, all of these other external factors around, you know, subscription models and uh, charity bundles and people pirating the game, all this kind of stuff, like nothing in there was discussed. And it was purely, you were immediately on the back pedal trying to kind of put out all of these small fires that you did not need to create in the first place. 
Um, and it's just, yeah, this is such a, this is the sort of thing that should be kind of studied for years to come about how to not uh, uh, kind of announce something of this nature, this scale. Uh, you know, so many lessons that Unity and hopefully other uh, platforms will, will learn from this. So, you know, I'm sure it's not the last we'll hear about it. I'm sure we'll hear plenty of other stories uh, over the following months. But um, yeah, that is that for now. Jack, mm-hmm. did you see the Metal Gear Solid 3 Snake Eater remake video doing the rounds? I did, yeah. Uh, the gameplay footage in the in the Unity engine. But yeah, people seem to have... The Unreal engine. Unreal, sorry. God, we've just been talking about <laughs> Unity. Apologies. But yes, it is in the Unreal engine. Um, yeah, people seem to have some mixed reactions, kind of. And it's only really gauging from social media. So um, we have an article here from Eurogamer. Um, and it's, it's one of these articles that I don't want to say I despise them, but I don't like them that much, where they're like, hmm, mixed reaction on X, Y, Z. And there might be a few people on Twitter that say they don't like something or a few people on Reddit that, that don't like something. But I find it odd to write an entire article where you just take a few quotes from one side of people's viewpoints and a few quotes from another side of people's viewpoints. But anyway, um, last night's Xbox Partner Preview Showcase, we saw some in-game footage of Konami's Metal Gear Solid 3 Snake Eater remake for the first time. But it has received a mixed reaction. So the remake, uh, to use its official name, Metal Gear Solid Delta Snake Eater, uh, is being developed in the Unreal 5 engine. And this new trailer showed Snake sneaking around uh, a beautifully lit jungle and a cute little frog paddling through some very realistic water. It's technically impressive, but some uh, for some fans, it's lost the art style of the original game. Now, I looked at it and I don't think it has lost the art style of the original game. I think it just looks like a highly polished version, you know, like a modern upscaled uprift version. Cause I guess there's a little bit of jank and a little bit of like flood of greenery and the way that Metal Gear Solid 3 looks. Did you play Metal Gear Solid Mark and Metal Gear Solid 3 Mark in the end? Or so like I a did, little bit of it? I, I did start uh, streaming it a while ago and then, um, you know, we, we went on the holiday and I just realized I didn't kind of have the time to play it because of a whole bunch of other things. But I played like the first two hours or so of it and i i have over the years kind of watched clips of like other parts of the game or you know um watch there's been a whole bunch of like deep dives on this particular game so i'm very much kind of aware of like the era that it's set in and the the visual style of it mm. yeah uh it's set in that kind of you know, 60s kind of Cold War era. Uh, and there's very much a sort of Rambo aesthetic about Solid Snake in this game. Um, and from what I saw of the actual bits and pieces of Snake, I think it's really cool how they've brought that to life and how he does look like he's ready for jungle combat and stuff. Um, and everything just does look cool. It looks up It looks interesting. It's a bit brighter than the original game as well, a bit lighter. Um, it'd be interesting to see what the day-night dynamic looks like in the game because there are some parts of the game where you know, it's set at night or you're in a kind of darker environment, um, particularly thinking um, it'd be interesting to see what the boss battle against the end looks like in a modern video game. But... Yeah, to me, I don't really see what the big deal is. Uh, I I think people are always going to, if they have a like like we were talking about earlier with like people doing homages to games and 
you know, they're always going to have that feeling where it's like, oh, I don't like this because it's slightly different from from what I did before or what I saw before. Um, David Hater liked it, uh, the original voice of Solid Snake. So if it's good enough for David, it's good enough for me. Um, and yeah, I, I think it looks cool, but... You know, we'll see. We'll see how it goes when it comes out. Um, I hope they don't trifle too much with the gameplay, really, because uh, I think the gameplay is pretty cool. Maybe the control scheme could do with a little bit of a tune-up, a little bit of a modern refinement, bring it more in line with maybe the Metal Gear Solid Five control scheme. Uh, I think that would benefit the game because uh, I think that's one of the things that I know, particularly you as well, Mark, have said that you find it difficult to vibe with the old-school nature of the Metal Gear Solid control th- schemes, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I kind of got there in the end with, with, uh, MGS one and two, um, you know, mm. for the most part, I, I could kind of get my way around it, but they still would not be my kind of preferred ways of, of playing video games. I, I think the thing <clears throat> in particular that I guess maybe kind of the thing that has people worried, you know, look, this is not the first time that Konami have tried to touch up some of their older games and, uh, you know, people kind of constantly bring up that Silent Hill 2 remake and like the the uh, the, the lack of fog and, and just there's something with that era of games. There's a certain kind of grittiness that when you lose that, something does get lost in translation and it doesn't have to just be the, the fog effects like it can just be there's that that kind of layer that filter in particular that MGS3 has that, you know, really does capture that, as you mentioned, sort of 60s Cold War era. And I do think that currently what we see, it does look a little bit too clean for me. Um, But I do think that that's something that you can probably fix quite easily with just a couple of changes around, like, the lighting or some sort of post-processing. Just add just a little bit of, of, uh, I don't know, like a kind of... uh, uh, like Slap an Instagram filter over the top of it. Pretty much to some degree, yeah. I'm, I'm sure it's a little bit more technical than that, but it does. It does look just a little bit too clean for me at the moment. Um, but uh, also, again, what, what's the fucking release date on this thing? Is there a release date on it? Uh, I don't think we have uh, a sort of squared off release date for it. Yeah. Yet. So there's there's plenty of fucking time to obviously you yeah. know. And that's, and that's the thing as well, like, people lose their minds over reveals and whatnot, forgetting that, you know, this game could be anywhere from six months to a year out, and there's a lot of things that can change and, and be improved and modified over that time. Mm. Agreed. All right, that is that for now. Uh, Super Mario Bros. Wonder is now the fastest-selling Mario game ever in Europe. The company announced a statistic, uh, this was, when was this, 26th, yesterday, Thursday, as of the time of this recording, uh, did not provide any concrete sales figures, uh, we'll probably get those as part of a global sales update or financial statement for whatever the, the next quarter is. Uh, regardless, though, it's a positive sign that things have gone well for the elephant-shaped Mario and his warp pipe stuffing chums. Um, though even Nintendo's mascot couldn't quite beat Spider-Man 2 in the UK's boxed uh, game chart on Monday. In the UK, uh, Wonder is Mario's third biggest UK launch behind a duo of other Switch titles, Super Mario Odyssey and Super Mario 3D All-Stars. Uh, Wonder launched on Switch last Friday, 20th of October. Of October. Um, and uh yeah like you know it probably doesn't come as a surprise that this has sold as well as it did considering where we are with the switch install base at this point 
Um, and, you know, we spoke as well kind of last week. Probably not too much of a crossover between people that are going to play this and play Spider-Man, uh, other than the dorks on this podcast. But, uh, yeah, look, Hello. Nintendo probably going to have a very good year financially. Shock of all shocks. Yeah, I think any of their first-party stuff always just tends to fly out of the fly off the shelves, doesn't it, really? Uh, this and Zelda for them this year has been pretty huge, I would say. Um, yeah, they would have made a lot of money this year. Hey, they're good games. They don't really release duds uh, that much. I <sighs> guess the really. only dud... Yeah, the only dud is probably whatever that 1-2 Switch sequel was, which really disappeared <laughs> off the face of the earth quicker than... Oh my right. god. I still... Every time we bring it up, I completely forget that thing happened. Fucking hell. Um, yeah. I, I guess Pikmin 4 also happened this year. Um, I haven't really heard too much about that. There was a WarioWare game, well. I think, that launched recently as well, that yeah. kind of came and went. Um, yeah, I guess WarioWare was more of a niche audience anyway. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Pik- Pikmin had a smaller install base, like the original version, but I think the game did pretty well. I think it was like the highest selling, or highest selling like initial Pikmin title they've ever had, so... It's it's kind of probably projecting out roughly where they thought it was. Though again, that, that probably doesn't come as a surprise considering that the last, like all of the previous entries were um, GameCube or what was Pikmin 3 a Wii U game or a Wii game? Or was it even maybe a, an early Switch game? No, I don't think it was a Switch wow. game. What the fuck was that on Pikmin 3? I think, the Wii, I think it was a Wii U, mate. I think I want to say it, it was, was about a Wii 10 U. years ago. Yeah, it was a Wii yeah. U. So, um, yeah, Pikmin 4 being the best, like, selling of that series is not a surprise, considering the the kind of low install count of the GameCube, and specifically the Wii U. Um, but then, I'm trying I've to think... Got, I've got a Wii U in my house, and I'm probably one-tenth of the install base yeah, of the Wii U. Pretty much, yeah. Uh, and there was also the, the Metroid Prime remaster at the start of the year, which probably did quite yes. well, because that was during a quiet period. Um, and also was just fucking just dropped out of nowhere. God, that thing was good as well. It was, it was very, uh, look, you know, it's, it's based off of a, a very iconic game that, you know, we'd been clamoring for that remaster for a while. Um, so yeah. And look, they still got that Metroid prime four fucking, uh, somewhere in the holster whenever they want to smash that, that red, red button. But you know, um, that could also be another four or five years away. So, <laughs> hmm. uh, hey, Mark, I want to, uh, I want to sabotage the the last news article here because oh. obviously, All right. uh, Power Wash Simulator Dev Velocity releasing a spiritual successor uh, to one of their old, very popular games, Velocity, and called Ikaro Will Not Die, and that's coming out next year. But I feel like, very strangely, you have avoided talking about the video game news that you yourself have created. So I wanted to ask you how your video game uh. presentation went. Um, seeing as you rocked up at uh, the GamerFest event in Ireland and uh, there were quite a few people coming over to your booth playing your game and yeah, just just tell us, you know, how that went as, as, as the last news article to close out the week. Um, you know, Irish-based developer Space Lion demos Axis at Ireland GamerFest. Mark, let's go live to the reaction of the developer now for this story. Oh, thank you so much. You're, you're too kind. Yeah, no, it was it was a really cool weekend. Um so if anyone doesn't doesn't know, GamerFest is I say the biggest, I think it's probably the only like kind of big um games expo here in Ireland. We do have Comic Con, but 
but obviously that isn't kind of game specific. Um, and this event, I believe, has been running since about 2017. So it's still, you know, very much kind of in, in the early stages of its inception. And I think if you come to an event like this, it's it's quite different than if you go to like an EGX or, or a Gamescom. Um, it's very much like, you know, you have a lot of kids, you have a lot of families. Um, I'd say it's way more casual in, in that aspect. Um, so you don't really have, you know, if you go to like an EGX or a Gamescom or whatnot, you're going to have the heavy hitters there showing off uh, like demos for upcoming games or, or just like released games. You know, if this if this had been an event in London or Germany, I'd imagine you probably would have had like a Spider-Man there or something. But like the biggest game that they showed off, well, outside of something like Minecraft, which they just they always have a corner there every year. But it was probably like Sonic Superstars in terms of like recent games. So, um, but again, it's it's very kind of early in in its uh, life cycle, and I think that every year that they do it, because I. I went to the event last year and they run it twice a year in May and October. So I went to last year's October one and, uh, and you know, it's, it's definitely like you can go there for a day and, and you can pretty like it, it takes place over the Saturday and the Sunday and you can probably do everything that, that needs to be done there in a day, unless there's like specific talks that are happening that maybe you're on like another day that you want to see. Um, and they very much lean into like there's a lot of of like Irish based influencers and YouTubers and there's there's very much like that part of it um, very much kind of like cosplay heavy as well. So I do kind of hope over the years to come that they're they're able to bring in um, even just you know one or two kind of bigger publishers, whether it be like an, an Ubisoft or like you know there was FIFA is there every year, but you know that isn't kind of that kind of crazy in terms of, of like the bigger uh, games or platforms you could bring in. So I'm hoping that side of it gets bigger. And I'm also hoping as well, um, and this is partially obviously based on like what indie developers are around and what the scene looks like at the time. Um, but there was, I think there was like two indie developers last year. And this year there were, there were three of us. There was meant to be a fourth one, but they, they pulled out for whatever reason. Um, so to the left of us, was uh, uh, Gaelic uh, Football 2024. Um, and they had like a whole setup. They had like four workstations and they were pretty popular over the weekend. And to the left of us, there was a, a publisher, I think they were called like Scattershot Games, who were showing off some like kind of early prototypes of some other people's stuff. But for us, this was obviously, this was the first time that we were showing off uh, access to, to the public. Um, you know, I've been working on this thing now for about four months. Um, and it was really just kind of wanting to get it in the hands of people that weren't, you know, Maria or close friends and just kind of get a, a general vibe of what like the public think about it. And mm. the thing that I was surprised by is like just how many kids came up and, and wanted to play it. Uh, cause I was thinking that, you know, I'll easily be able to get, you know, people that are around about my age to take a look at it. Because they'll either look at it and, and remember Cooler World and be like, oh, yeah, I, I know what that looks like. I want to play that. Or at least they'll they'll make some... Or Monkey Ball. <laughs> well, that's the thing. Yeah, a lot of people did kind of also think Super Monkey Ball, though, like, I had to kind of point out that the game doesn't play like Super Monkey Ball it at doesn't. all. No. Um, but, you know, at least they some people did see that and still wanted to play it anyway. So... Those people, I, I was, you know, I was more than confident that I could get them to play. But I was just amazed by how many kids came up and, and wanted to play it. And I think partially part of it is that 
<laughs> a there just weren't that many things to play in the event that uh you didn't have to queue quite a long time for uh, and b i think because the game has quite a sort of blocky nature to it i, th I think probably a lot of the kids looked at it and just looked, you know made a comparison to a minecraft or a, a roblox um it, yeah it does like so i am I haven't played it yet. I've I've watched all the videos and stuff that you've put up, and it does just look like one of those games you can easily pick up and play and figure out quite quickly. Yeah. And then that sort of element of the puzzle nature to it makes it quite, seem like it'd be quite addictive to 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 pick up and play. Like it'd be good <laughs> if you could get it on there, like a good mobile game as well, maybe to uh, to figure out. It's not, it's not, something like, we've, to make we've your life that much harder. <laughs> it's something we've discussed and, and thought about, and it's you know. Um, mm. It's there as a tentative plan, at least, anyway. But yeah, I, I do think that because um, certainly as well, like you know, the way that this game is made and what it is, I think one of the reasons that um, kids were able to kind of like jump on board of it is that it doesn't have that kind of twitchy, fast-paced nature to it, where you pick up and then there are like a hundred things that are trying to kill you or anything. Like you can go at your own pace. There is a time limit, and in the you know final release, there'll be an easy mode that will remove remove the timer, so you can kind of go at your own pace. Um, but yeah, kids kind of just kind of gravitate towards it, and I think they just liked how they looked. And the the early levels are there that you can kind of go at your own pace, and, and the mechanics are simple enough that yeah, I, I was genuinely su surprised and very pleased that a, a lot of kids played it and seemed to kind of like you know gravitate towards it. Um, I think we had probably over the course of the weekend, I don't know, about 70 to 80 people maybe try it. Um, we could have had more, but because we only had the one workstation, uh, you know, there were multiple times where we had queues of about three or four people waiting. Some people went and did a lap and came back later. Uh, some people wanted to play the game a second time because they were really enjoying it. Uh, and I'd say probably about, I'd say about 30% of the people that played it the demo is 10 levels long so i'd say about 30 percent of the people played the whole thing um and then i'd say at least about 70 75 percent got to at least like level five or level six and then either stopped because they just they were done with it or you know like they had to go elsewhere whatever the case may be but certainly like you know um way more people played it and saw the thing through to the end than i thought that they would uh and you know i i gave the same pitch fucking a hundred times over the weekend to to everyone but yeah for me it was, it was this was probably like the perfect event to do this because it's a little bit smaller in scale compared to some of the other bigger events which meant that i wouldn't i wasn't going to be too overwhelmed and there was a lot of things that i could learn in a kind of smaller self-contained environment compared to like a, a gamescom or an egx or whatever so there was a lot i learned from the event that I, I'll take forward to, you know, hopefully when I show this off next year, you know, I, I do want to go over to London for an event or two and, and anywhere I can get to that basically I can fucking afford to do at the moment. Um, but overall, overall, super, super positive. Had a couple of um, uh, uh, potential opportunities for like podcasts and interviews to do. Had a couple of um, Irish uh, like YouTubers and streamers who really want to play and really want to... Um, uh, you know, just want to play it as soon as they can, and I've told them basically to hold off until like the next build is ready because that's gonna fix. So there were a couple of things in terms of feedback that I got, which was great 
in the fact that a lot of the feedback I was getting were on things that I basically wanted were like the things that I was doing next anyway, or just mm. wanted to have done for this demo, but just we didn't have time. Uh, and, you know, a couple of other things just in terms of like how we were going to implement those features. So that was really good as well, because it meant that like, all right, I'm on the right path in terms of knowing what are the next kind of like essential things that we need to, to get done for the next build. And, and fingers crossed that um, once all of those parts of like the control and, and it's just elements around like the movement and, and we, you know, we were talking earlier about um, El Paso elsewhere and, you know, this game is, is based quite a lot on, on Cooler World in terms of the movement, but you go back and play that and there are certain kind of quality of life features that aren't in that that I won't, wasn't thinking about at first with this and it was only until other people started playing it like, for instance, um, in Cooler World, you can't do like an immediate 180 to look like behind you. Uh, you have to tap left or right twice. And I, you know, didn't reconsider that because just like I didn't do it in Cooler World. So I'm not going to do it here or I just didn't think about it. But as soon as other people started playing and realized that they couldn't immediately turn around, it made a lot of sense. Like, yeah, of course you should have that in there. So you've got these kind of little quality of, quality of life features that um, will, will be in the next build that will be the build that I then start using to pitch to publishers and will be like the build that I'll give to, you know, basically any fucking streamer that wants to play it and, and kind of showcase it. Um, and it'll probably be around about the time, hopefully, that I get a Steam page up as well. So, yeah, overall, just a really, really solid weekend. It was a really great opportunity. Um, I, I've already emailed the, the organizer for like the event in May. Uh, I definitely want to kind of be back there for that because, like, considering where we are three to four months into de in development, by the time we get to May, you know, like, I'm I'm really excited about where the game will be at that point. Um, and then. You know, maybe potentially like I can get a publisher on board, but like this game gets made one way or the other. Uh, and, and that's part of like, you know, when we started making this this game, a lot of the mentality was like, look, we have to have two different versions. One is the one that we release with a publisher and one, one that we do without. Um, and and that's that's really, you know, it's it's good for us because it means that even if, you know, we, we talk to 100 publishers and they all decide they're not interested it doesn't stop us from making making this and releasing it. Um, yeah, so, hell no. Yeah, look, I'm, I'm sure you'll probably makes it a bit more difficult. But you know, like, yeah, if, if anything, like you're, you know, you're you're seizing the means of production at that point. You know, you're you're your own boss and getting up and sorting it all out and stuff. Which yeah, is there's cool. there's one or two technical challenges that come that come with not having a publisher. Um, one of the biggest things off the top of my head, and I haven't done enough research to see exactly yet is like I want to have this on PC and Nintendo Switch day one. Um, but I don't know, like, the when you're doing it yourselves, like what, what challenges you kind of run into when it comes to putting it on, on, a, on a different platform that isn't PC. So sure. I need to kind of look into that. Uh, and obviously, you know, if you have a publisher that has a history with releasing to Switch, that makes life a lot easier with that. Uh, so that's the kind of big thing. But to be honest, the biggest thing when it comes to, to publishing that can help you out it's just the marketing side of it because obviously they have like all the contacts with pr and they have a, a much wider reach than than you do so that that is the the big thing um that you know over the next kind of six to eight months 
uh, I, I've got to do, and hey, look, I have a background in community management and marketing from like the, the years that I've worked in the gaming industry. And it's just kind of figuring out like the best way to get that organic reach out there um, and, and just trying to sustain it while on top of the fact that I of trying to make the fucking thing as well. Um, mm. Cause that that's one of the things like when you're a, a two man studio, um, you don't really realize until you start like really kind of getting into it, how much time spent making the game isn't actually spent making the game and is doing everything else around it. So, you know, I'm, uh, there's going to be a lot of long nights. Uh, I'm going to be tired for the next six to eight months, but, yeah. um, Hey, at the end of it, there'll be a fucking game that's released. And as I've always said to, to my closest friends and whatnot, there were basically two things I wanted to do in this life. One was make an album and one was make a video game. I've already done the first one. I did that with you. Uh, and I'm still Hello. very, still very proud of that. And, and this is definitely going to happen, um, within the next year. Yeah. So hell yeah um one final thing uh i've got a question about it um the question reads congratulations on the game uh and when can you fit it into your schedule to make me a new version of ssx but like <laughs> space lion snowboarding and that question comes from m biggs of Cheson. so there you go um that would basically require me to have an animator um yeah so yeah. like there was there was a uh a first prototype that we were working on for a good few months and part of the reason that we stopped working on that uh, was the simple fact that you know one of the things that i've learned you know in in the last kind of like 10 months or so is that if you're looking to get a publishing deal and you're a first time studio and you've you have no kind of history with releasing stuff it's very very difficult to get a publishing deal unless you have like a very fucking good vertical slice and you can really show to a, a publisher that like hey you have the the, the capabilities of doing this <clears throat> and with that first project it was kind of the the snake eating its own tail where i wasn't going to be able to hire people to do stuff because i didn't have the the money and i wasn't going to be able to get the money because i didn't have the people to make the things i needed for the vertical slice so, you know, one of the reasons that we changed fairly quickly uh, after five or six months is like, look, we basically have to play to our own strengths. And that meant that, you know, no animation, very little in the way of AI, just kind of focus on the things we could do. So while I'd love to make uh, my own kind of take on SSX, um, I think that would require a significantly larger budget and, and manpower than I currently have. So... Well, it um, sounds yeah. like you've got one copy sold for M Biggs from Cheson. Good, um, thank you. Good. Thank, thank you for your question, M Biggs. From thank you, Cheson. thank yeah. you very much, anonymous M Biggs. Yes, if thank that you. is in fact you your for real name. Yeah, I know, right? It's, it's sort of fucking Star Wars character or a Final <laughs> Fantasy character, isn't it, Biggs? <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah, and he he also wanted to know that if uh, if you if if there's playable characters in the game can one of them be a space lion so a lion in a space costume um yeah. uh, unfortunately you will only ever play as a bull but we're looking to make the bull have different skins and, and things that you can yeah. buy in a shop uh yeah. all, all kind of in-game currency no in-app purchases or anything like that <laughs> i see got me cranking out like a can free quid if i want to make a, my, no, my no, ball, no, a golden no. ball i i couldn't bring myself to do that maybe for the mobile version fuck it we'll go crazy with that yeah cool all right mate all right that might be uh that might be it son thank you very much thank you for the uh the impromptu question segment there uh oh, yeah. that will do it for another installment of a link to the cast 
Uh, as always, please, please like, listen, share, and subscribe. Uh, we always appreciate hearing from you fine folk. Uh, as we are coming very, very close to the end of the year, um, please do tell us about what games you've liked this year. Uh, what games were your favorite to play, or your favorite to look at, your favorite to listen to? Most importantly, what was your favorite average game of the year, and who was your goodest boy of the year? Um, oh, yes. We will be you know kind of starting to uh kind of get things in place for our game of the year uh and that will also one of the crucial things with that is there will be a form that goes out sometime in november uh with all of our nominations for for our game of the year categories so do keep an eye out for that in the upcoming weeks um but until then uh you can find us as always on twitter at link to the cast Dave is at the day to Dave. I am at Lithium Project. Jack is at Jack Lazel. Garrett is at Garrett Kidney. Uh, until then, have a wonderful week, and we'll see you again next time for another installment of A Link to the Cast. <laughs>